0: The information in this podcast is current on the day of recording. It is general advice only and does not take your personal situation into account. It may not be suitable for you. Participants in this podcast may also own the securities discussed. For more information, head over to investmart.com.au
1: Welcome to Skin in the Game, apparently Investmart's second best podcast after the recent launch of For What It's Worth... I'm your host Nathan Bell and the Portfolio Manager for the Income and Growth Funds for the Investment and Intelligent Investor Funds and as always I'm joined by Alex Hughes who looks after our Small Cap Fund. Welcome Alex. Hi Nath. How do you feel working on the second best podcast in
0: the business mate? Yeah it's, it's humbling there's some great competition <laughs> out there.
1: So we've got a lot to get through as always today we've got uh, a bunch of questions from listeners which we'll do last. We've got a few companies to have a look at first. And just quickly off the bat, just uh, I just want to say thank you to Rosaline who followed up uh, the topic we had on the last podcast about investing for your kids. And she pointed out to me that uh, I mentioned that it can be quite difficult sometimes setting up a trustee account, but uh, not that we're plugging Comstex product here, but uh, it does look very easy from the perspective of opening an account uh, for a kid or so someone under 18 uh, and then you as, a, as the adult uh, being the trustee. That process actually looks very easy. Uh, the main thing as we discussed with the last podcast is just to make sure you're aware of the tax consequences because once that account uh, earns more than I think it's $456, any incremental annual income, uh, which I think includes capital, would include realised capital gains, is taxed at 66% and then Um, Once it gets, I think it was something like a couple of thousand dollars, it goes back to the highest uh, personal marginal tax rate of 47%. Uh, So thank you very much, Rosaline. And I've already tried to get my son interested in opening the account, but uh, he's done nothing as usual. All right, let's get into the serious stuff of stocks. Alex, do you want to quickly talk about SEEK's results?
0: Sure. So it was a, a very strong result, particularly in Xiapin, which is their Chinese subsidiary. And, and for me, that's the most interesting part of the business because that's where the the biggest growth potential lies. And it's it's interesting because there's there has been a bit of a short interest in seek, and some of the criticism has been that the multiple is too high. And for me, this result verified that you know there is a really strong runway for growth, and also there is room for growth in their large domestic subsidiary as well which provides the jobs portal here and um, it's still contributing great returns still growing strongly and it shows that there's more in the tank so
1: yeah i think people were surprised by the australian new zealand result just given the way the share price is probably down what 20 or 30 percent over the last six, eight months.
0: Yeah exactly, because it is mature and there is concern about the Australian economy as well. So um, that part of the business surprised and that's important because it's the biggest part of the valuation. Um, but for me, Zaupin was the feature there. Uh, this business has the potential to be much bigger in time. They are playing the long game, they're not trying to monetize it now, they're trying to invest in it, trying to really establish a strong position and we really like what we see of management there.
1: I just find it very hard not to be impressed by the way management reports about the business like it's one of these things that we always talk about but we love management with skin in the game it's the whole reason behind the, the, name of the podcast. podcast the second best podcast and if you go through their results every six months they just provide a lot of detail about the investments they've made in the past and the returns they've made on those investments in the different parts of the business and I haven't seen any other company do that
0: yeah I saw an article where the CEO Talked about actively discouraging short-term investors, and they've tried to push all those people away to get the real long-term thinkers into the stock. And for you know, that's just fantastic. That's what we like to partner alongside with.
1: I think it also shows the fallacy of looking at price-to-earnings ratios because if you to look at the current multiple, I think it's probably in the high 20s at the moment. Yeah, about 30-ish, I think. Yeah. So if you look at that and say, well, even in you know, a reasonably good market and it's a, a very good business. Maybe it should just be, um, you know, 20 times or low 20s maybe with interest rates so low. But 30 times you say, well, imagine if you go through a downturn, the earnings come off a bit and then the multiple can potentially go down to 15 or something and you lose half your money. But the fallacy of the price to earnings ratio is it's only looking at the earnings as a snapshot in time and there's a huge amount of investment going into the accounts at the moment that's increasing the expenses, but you're not going to get the return on those that
0: spending for many years to come. Absolutely, yeah. It's been a, a big lesson that's been drilled into me over the last um, year, few years or so is that price earnings ratios are so misleading. You know, you think, well, you get taught that a 30 PA is high, but, you know, if there's strong growth there, that, that could actually be really, really low, and, and Seek could be um, that situation exactly.
1: Mm. Another little thing I like about Seek is uh, when they did the Xiaoping transaction, I think it was last year, uh, One of the guys or one of the groups in China that came in and bought a 10% stake was uh, a company called Hill House which is essentially a bit like a hedge fund or a fund manager and the guy there has an excellent track record and I always worry about companies owning Chinese businesses because executives and important people tend to disappear at times Uh, and I just really like Hill House being on the, uh, as an investor there because uh, they've been investing for decades in the big technology companies in China and they've made an absolute fortune, I think they manage about $30 billion now, they've been so successful uh, and they really uh, identify with management and one of the reasons they've typically avoided Alibaba in the past is because of the shenanigans that the Jack Ma, the CEO, has played with the Ant uh, mobile payments business. Uh, which is essentially, he just took a whole bunch of it for himself and hmm. shareholders were left with some of it, but not all of what, all of what they should have. So it just says that I think that says a lot about the types of people that seek are partnering with. Yep, that's a good sign. So next one, a company that you've uh, bought recently, Pushpay.
0: Yeah, so Pushpay is a recent addition to the portfolio and it provides mobile payment solutions predominantly to the US faith sector. And I like this business because I think there's a scale advantage here, but it's also really it's in the early stages of a digital land grab, and it's actually um, now profitable. So I think there's a lot of growth ahead, and it's, it's a more robust business, business than, than investors give it credit for. Um, the common criticism is, you know, why don't churches just use PayPal or, you know, there's a thousand other payment apps out there, you know, what's so special about this company? and i think what makes it special is that it really focuses on the church administrator's needs and it seeks to really make life easy for them so pushpay specializes on the large us churches and it's amazing some of the weekly attendances are you know 50,000 people it's like a bit of a rock concert yeah, now we yeah, got... podcast yeah absolutely and so when you've got so many people coming and giving, um, you know, there's a huge administrative burden there for the church administrators and also when uh, as giving is tax deductible, you need to issue tax statements. And so there's, there's a lot to handle there and so a specialised system is important. Now Pushpay was the first mover and they've actually established a really big revenue base and that has given them a number of scale advantages. So they've got a development team of over 100 developers, and that compares to most of their competitors that have total employees of maybe 10 or 20. So got really strong there, and that allows them to continually develop new features just to make life easy for the church administrators. And a recent one was the integration with, with QuickBooks, which is the dominant accounting platform across the US. And, you know, smaller competitors just struggle to keep um, doing things like that that makes it easier. Um, The second part of their scale advantage is marketing, so with a big recurring revenue base they can spend a ton on marketing and that's important at the start of a digital land grab um, because it's all about establishing that network and Pushpay is actually the fifth largest app issuer in the world because once they convince a church to adopt their payment system, the church then convinces all of the congregation to download the app. So there's thousands, Pushpay's got seven, over 7,000 church customers, but there's thousands of people that attend these churches. So it's this embedded um, network of people that are going to continually pay through Pushpay. Um, and it's still in the early stages, digital payments um, are still in the infancy, so there's a lot of growth there. We can, I think they can acquire many more customers, and I think you'll see this business have really strong earnings growth, and it's a lot more robust than people give it credit for.
1: There's a really good book I read when I first started, Intelligent Investor, um, a long time ago called Focus, and what it was mainly about was how uh, when something changes in an industry, uh, one company can actually make money if they stay with the old industry, if they're the only one left doing things the old way. But it talked about how if companies can do well if they lead, sort of the new technology, if you like, but anything stuck in the middle ends up dying. And it talked also about how when they shift to the new world, you actually get companies sort of breaking down industries. So you've got something broad like a PayPal, but then you get companies that have very specific niches uh, that they really look to uh, be dominant in. And I think that's PayPal, sorry, Pushpay is a perfect example of that, where it's got a specific niche and it just does it really, really well. And does it look, as you said, it looks after the specifics of churches, which PayPal doesn't, and it's, it's worth paying for. And you can see that in the rapid revenue take up.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. And the church base has been slow to adopt technology, and they saw that early and and capitalised on it. So, yeah, I think exciting times ahead for them. There's
1: been a recent uh, small change in the strategy as well. They're only going after the big churches at the moment.
0: That's right, yeah. Bigger churches have better economics. You know, there's more people, um, so there's a higher revenue opportunity. Um, and they're more forward-thinking as well, you know, when you've got 50,000 weekly attendees, you need to be thinking about, you know, it's essentially like running an event company, they need to be thinking about how they can stay engaged with their, with their consumer base. Um, so they're more likely to adopt new technology and actually use it appropriately. Um, so you get um, good metrics between the value of, of the customer and the cost to acquire that customer. So in the smaller church space, where churches are Um, slower to adopt technology, the value of that customer is smaller um, and and the cost to acquire them might be the same, you know, the economics just don't stack up as well. So yeah, focusing on the large end is really important and um, Pushpay is actually the leader. They've got 55 of the top 100 churches in the U.S. So they've got that social proof that, you know, they're the industry leader, they're used by the big guys and I think that will follow through where they'll acquire, you know, a, a big number of the medium to large churches in the U.S. All right, so from a
1: modern-day software provider or mobile payments provider to an old-school plumbing company, Reliance Worldwide is a stock that I have in our growth portfolio. And recently, the chairman and uh, basically the founding family, uh, the chairman's a guy called Jonathan Munts. he's sold out completely from the company. And it was his father that founded the business, I think he's about 90 Uh, Jonathan Munch is uh, 52. Interesting. Did he give an explanation as to why he sold? uh, So I'll come back to that, but I'll just say quickly to you more broadly, Alex, if you look at a company and you like the insider ownership, it's something, as we keep talking about, it's important to us. If you saw the insider sell out, How do you approach that situation? Does it mean automatically sell?
0: Yeah, I've got a rule now where I'll essentially stop everything and sit down and say, okay, this has happened. I need to really focus on this and and understand what's happened and what it means. And so that would be a really strong signal for me. I'd have to really rethink the investment case, think about why he's doing that. Um, I mean, I I don't think you can generalise across the board um, whether you should just completely exit. but history has shown that when there is strong insider selling, um, bad things tend to follow. So I think it's something to take really close watch of. So at the moment,
1: uh, the Munz family actually sold out mostly through the IPO uh, a couple of years back. And it was really only when they decided to make a recent acquisition of the John Guest uh, business in the UK that the Munz family put a big chunk of money back in. And it just seems odd that they put the money in for this particular deal and it's only been you know, six months, and barely, since they made the acquisition. So no time to embed the new John Gates business into the existing Reliance business. It's gonna take a couple of years at least. And now he's pulled the money out and said he doesn't wanna be chairman anymore. So what I actually find surprising is he actually put the money in in the first place I don't know whether he was looking for a quick buck, thinking that the acquisition was going to launch the share price back up to its high of $6 and then he'd be able to time a nice exit and it'd be a really nice, quick $50 million, $60 million payout.
0: Yeah, Um, or unless he's learned something about the acquired business now that has put him off, perhaps.
1: Yeah, uh, quite possibly. Uh, But my thinking at the moment is that they didn't really have that much skin in the game after the sellout anyway uh, through the IPO. And I, and I don't think Jonathan Mudd's ever wanted to continue being chairman anyway. I think he was just stuck there because people like to see stability when the company lists. Mm. Uh, so, so I haven't sold any stock. I, I still believe in the business for the long term, uh, but ag- again, I, you just see over history that often the best, certainly the best times for the businesses are often over when the founder steps down, like it's not their rapid growth anymore. Uh, but given the expectations for the stock are at least 25% lower than what they were, given the share price has come down, and it's a global leader in this business, and I still think it's got a very long runway. I don't think we can, you know, I'm just guessing the business goes back to, I think, the the 80s, so I don't know what the return the Munts family would have made, but they're billionaires now, so it's obviously very, very high. Mm. But I, I believe we can do at least 10% from this business over time, and that's yeah. good enough for me.
0: And that's the important thing, making a conscious decision that, okay, this has happened and I've, I've assessed it and I've decided to stay on. As long as you've done that, I think that's, that's the right place to be. Time will
1: tell whether I'm actually right in that decision. So, next question, uh, next company we're going to look at is a very small company that I'm sure most people have never heard of, Redbubble.
0: Redbubble, yeah, so it's an online marketplace for art. So it brings together people that like to buy art on t-shirts or other consumer items and actual artists who create the art and are trying to find a platform to sell it. And I looked at the business when I was with Intelligent Investor and passed on the stock, and the price went up and now it's come back down, and so I've checked back in. And I'm not convinced that this business has a really strong network, and you'll ever see the really strong economics that flow from businesses that do have strong network effects. And the reason for that is what's called multi-homing. So to explain it, Nate, let's let's say we go back to the 1800s, we've just invented the telephone and now you and I are going to go about rolling that out. Now, at the start of that journey, it's really expensive to acquire customers because you have to convince them about the merit of a telephone to start with. Um, And the value of that network is small, but over time, as more and more people join that network, it becomes cheaper and easier to acquire customers because the benefits of the network are obvious. And that's sort of the definition of network effects. You, know, you should see declining customer acquisition costs over time because the network is more enticing for new users. Now the problem with Redbubble is that it's easy for us as consumers to go to Etsy or to any of their competitors, but most importantly for the, on the supply side, it's easy for artists to put their designs up on Etsy, Redbubble, any of the others. So the, there's no exclusivity with the inventory and I think what that will mean is that Redbubble will continually have to spend a fortune to acquire both the supply and demand. And we actually saw that recently where they had some issues with traffic to their website due to some changes by Google. So I think even if the, the network is far bigger, you'll never see those, the benefits of a network effect and the lower customer acquisition, acquisition costs, costs that you'd expect because um, consumers can, and, and, and artists can, can just bounce around as they please. So, despite looking like it's got network effects, I don't think you'll ever see the economics of network effects.
1: Yeah, I think when you're looking at these businesses, you really want to see that operating leverage kick in at some point. Like we talk about these, uh, like a push pay getting to break even, you really expect the profit margins now to explode over the next three or four years. And I just can't see it happening. Uh, you mentioned Etsy, which is a company I've talked about in webinars in the past, which is the American version. And it's actually, if you have a look at the share price, I think it's up about. Um, five or six times or, or more recently because the previous CEO basically ran it into the ground, was spending it on all the wrong things. At the same time, the revenues were coming down. The new CEO came in and he's just done a terrific job and he's put up prices for people who want to put their stuff, uh, so for artists who want to sell their stuff on, on the website. And I think that's the most important thing that if uh, to decide whether you know you've got a good business or not. If you're scared of putting prices up mm-hmm. and people will say putting their crafts on... Redbubble, all of a sudden they put the prices up for the postage and the selling and the advertising and all of a sudden they switch to Etsy, um, then you know you've got a problem and you're just never going to have great economics and I'm yeah. not sure how Redbubble competes against Etsy.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, exactly right. If it's easy for artists just to switch to the other platform, then the economics aren't going to be good. Mm-hmm. So unless the two got together and they had they were the only game in town, um, that maybe they could have a good business. But I think if the two exist and they're competing with each other. I think, yeah, you're unlikely to see really strong economics there. Okay, so
1: that's it for the small cap world. We've got uh, four questions to get through. Uh, the first one, we're at the micro cap end uh, end here. Hi guys, I bought a position in Oliver's, a code OLI, for 23 cents, and I've watched it drop to 0.3 or 3 cents, losing some 80 to 90 percent of the value. It wasn't a big investment,
0: uh, but what should I do now? I'd sell it to be honest, um, I, I had a good look at this business over a year ago and I think there is a good concept here, I think there is demand for healthy food on highways which is what Oliver does, but execution has been really poor and I also think it's really difficult competing with McDonald's even if and, and, and other fast food providers, even if you have a different um, line of food, McDonald's and co have still conditioned consumers to expect food at a low price and really quickly. And that's something Oliver has really struggled with. They just don't have the supply chain to do that. Um, and on top of that, they've had management issues. There's been a, um, a CEO that's been kicked out, and now he's actually flipped the board. Um, and they've also got financial issues. So there's just too many big fundamental problems there for me. I'd, I'd need to see the concept be verified in order to even have a hope of taking on all the other problems. So for me, it's a it's a very clear sell at this point.
1: So I'm just thinking now: is Oliver's one of those places where you stop off at? Uh, on your way between Sydney and Melbourne at the truck stop to, f- to fuel up. And, uh, okay, so, so it's actually quite competitive in those areas, right? There's a KFC, there's a subway, mm. and I imagine Oliver's has got a really, really high cost base compared to uh, a subway or a KFC
0: franchise. Yeah, that's right. So it's, it's arterial highways is where they locate their stores. Um, they claim there's, there's low competition because they're the only healthy alternative in many of the locations, and there may be some truth to that. But, I mean, you're still competing for lease space, mm you're still competing for um, staff and and all of the supply chain things. So maybe in the consumer's mind, they're the only healthy option, but in order to have all of the things you need to deliver food quickly, um, it's still very competitive with that. The funny thing is I eat
1: uh, as healthy as I can at home, but when, so at Christmas time we drove down to Victoria and back, so when we actually came back and stopped at those places, that's the one time I actually eat unhealthy. That's actually the time once a year I have KFC or Subway.
0: Yeah, we'll get all the good stuff into Yeah, I think a lot of people do that, to be honest. But, um, I mean, there is a rising trend for healthy food. So I think there is a need. But, but yeah, you're, you're right. It's going to take some work.
1: Okay, just a quick reminder. We can only provide general advice. So uh, when Alex says he would sell it, he's not telling you to sell it. Please make up your own mind and, and do your own homework. Next one's from Adrian, hello, love the podcast. Didn't say second best podcast, but uh, what do you think about Australian Vintage Limited as a long-term investment?
0: Um, I think when you go into a Dan Murphy's, it tells you all you need to know. Um, There's a 1,000 wines on offer, um, and that shows that it's really competitive and consumers have diverse preferences, so that's a tough place to be to start with. It's also a really capital intensive business, so For me, uh, that's an easy um, and avoid. Um, Perhaps they might um, become popular with Chinese consumers and they might have some growth on the back of that, but I struggle to assess that. um, So I've got no place um, investing in the stock.
1: Yeah, sometimes you want to look at smaller players because you think they can obviously become multiples of what they are today compared to the big stocks. But sometimes it's just better to buy the dominant company in the industry. And I think Treasury Wine Estates is actually somewhat interesting at the current price. I, I haven't done enough work uh, at this point to, to make a decision on it. Uh, but when it's, you've got a company there that can grow 15 to 20% at the operating line in the current environment, and and you see the consumption for Chinese people of wine, it's just absolutely tiny compared to Western nations' Uh, i actually think treasuries um, if you're looking at australian vintage um, have a look at treasury as well so i'll give you the next one alex and then i'll uh, do the last one so uh, hi nathan alex where can i find companies forecasted earnings and who forecasted these figures from
0: cowan so we use a service called Capital IQ here at Investmart and that's a paid service, it's quite a high cost and that provides all of the broker estimates. So it's the stock brokers out there that cover companies that estimate the earnings of the companies and that forms the consensus earnings and that's what we get through the platform Capital IQ. As a consumer, you can often get that through your online broking platform. I use ComSec and I know they provide earnings estimates, and I think most of the other online platforms do that as well. So check who you use, see if they provide it. That's probably the first port of call. Otherwise, if you're really interested, you could potentially pay for a platform like Capital IQ or some of the other ones that are out there.
1: A couple of tricks, I think, with uh, these earnings estimates is one they all had, um, tend to have herd-like behaviour. No one wants to stick their neck out when you're on the sell side, because that old saying by uh, John Keynes about uh, you don't want to fail unconventionally, because uh, you're the only one then that loses their job. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, what you see every, just about every year, with these sell-side analyst forecasts. Is that after a few months they all fall. Mm. So they start out very optimistic in the new year and they all fall.
0: Yeah, and they all show rising <laughs> earnings over time. A nice steal out of heaven, even though you know lots of businesses out there aren't going to grow their earnings. So yeah. Okay, so the last
1: one is from Daryl. Uh, Hi, at the PERS seminar, Nathan mentioned 360 Capital as a goodbye. On the investment site, there is no recommendation. Can you please discuss its pro- prospects and value? So uh, the first thing I'd say, if you're an Intelligent Investor subscriber uh, or you're an investor in our funds, in the December quarterly, I had the write-up I did for the Intelligent Investor special report, uh, Christmas special report in there. So either one of those two uh, sources, as long as you're an investor or a paid-up subscriber, you can go and read that article and uh, get my full view, which explains the business. Uh, but just in terms of an elevator pitch, 360 Capital uh, used to be a B grade A reach. so uh, I invested in it coming out of 2009, it was called Trafalgar back then, the code is TGP then and it still is now, and a guy called Tony Pitt came in uh, to that business in 2009 and you might recall back then there was all these A REITs trading at big discounts to the Net Tangible Assets. And Trafalgar was no different, but because its properties were much lower quality than most others, the discount was huge. I think the discount was like 50 or 60% possibly. And Tony came in and said, look, I'm gonna fix up these properties and then I'm gonna sell them and I'm gonna bridge that, and close that gap. And so I think I held the stock for barely a year and, and he did most of that. And I thought I'd done great getting my sort of 60 or 70% return in 12 months. And from 2010 or 11 to 2013, the share price didn't do anything. And then if you have a look what it's done since then, it absolutely took off where Tony did a couple of deals and just did a really, really good job of navigating the property recovery, coming out of the GFC and create an enormous amount of value for for himself and for shareholders. When you come out of a GFC type situation, particularly in property or property development, you wanna be in the equity because you wanna ride that recovery and get the maximum bang for your buck. When you're at this end of the cycle, which is the late end of the cycle, you much prefer to be a lender uh, to these sorts of situations because you get a lot more protection through the covenants. And the sort of deals at the moment Tony's looking for with the business is not to own these B-grade properties, but to go and develop, say, a $13 million doctor's office in suburbia. So a very small, very low risk development. And at the moment, you can get returns sort of over 12 or 18 months of of around 15 percent whereas it's normally around 11%, but because all the banks are pulling out of lending to these sorts of projects, uh, the returns have gone way up to attract capital. And so so uh, 360 capital at the moment is cash rich, it's sold off most of its property holdings, and now it's investing in these sort of projects. But the, the, the real uh, icing on the cake for this uh, investment case is that Tony's trying to build a funds management on, on a business on the back of this so if he can find these good investments and then bring a whole bunch of other investments in and charge them fees like any other fund manager would then you know maybe over the next five or ten years he could be managing a billion dollars or more in that funds management business and then if you think about the fees and how highly markets stock, the stock market rates those type of companies and put that compare that to the 200 million dollar business that it is at the moment i think there's a real chance this business could be worth a lot lot more uh in the future but The most important thing is at the moment we're paying absolutely nothing for it so it's a completely free option but some really good news came out last week there was an announcement from the company that said they're launching three separate funds and my guess is you don't go out to the market saying you're going to raise money from three funds unless you actually think you've uh, got those clients lined up so it's only raised about 110 million dollars so far in that funds management business which is uh, neither here nor there but it looks like uh, for the first time that funds management business is actually going to start making some real progress and the share price hasn't moved since then but we'll wait and see how much money is made but I just think when you're not paying for these situations and you've got an insider owner that owns a quarter of the shares, big funds can't own it because it's a fairly illiquid or it is a very liquid stock, I just think these are the sorts of opportunities that um, are sort of hard to look at because there's no. You know, price to earnings ratio or steady growth or anything it's a really unique business with hidden assets at the moment and people wonder you know when these things become five or ten baggers over a decade they go well geez how did you find that well this is what they look like hmm. and they look somewhat ugly but they've got things you can sort of tick the box and um, but you just the risk is small in terms of the funds management business at least, because you're not paying anything
0: for it. So they've got a lot, a lot of cash now, Nath. What's your expectation as to how long it will take them to deploy that cash?
1: Yeah, well I wouldn't have thought it would take very long. I noticed they sold more assets, assets recently, so there's almost nothing left. And uh, there was a deal that made the papers where they sold um, their holding in NextDC assets that they, Next DC leased from 360 Capital. So... Bullied
0: a return out of. <laughs>
1: So, yeah, so Tony Pitt's a very hard operator, I've been told, but you want that in property. You don't, uh, I don't think you make money out of property if you're, you're weak on the negotiating side. So, so I don't think it will take long and the fact that they've launched these funds tells me they've got projects ready to go. So I think you'll see over the next 12 months a fairly rapid investment uh, profile, but I think you want that anyway because while the returns are really high and the banks aren't in these sectors, Um, or looking at these sort of developments, you want to get in there and make the investments while the returns are there because I don't think they're going to last forever.
0: Mm. Okay, interesting. We'll check back in a year and see your progress. Uh, So
1: that's it for today. Uh, As always, uh, please send in in any questions, whether it's stock-specific or about the macro environment or uh, our roadshows or anything. We're always happy to do our best to answer them. The email address is skin in the game, or one word, skin in the game at investmart.com.au. We've only got one roadshow left, uh, which is in Sydney next week on Wednesday, so we hope to see some of you there. Thanks for listening.
0: To learn more about the income, growth, and small companies' funds, head over to investmart.com.au. Relevant disclosure documents should be read before making any investment decisions. And if you have any questions you'd like answered by our team, send us an email at skininthegame at investsmart.com.au.